Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying happy, I hope you're staying safe, and I hope you're staying healthy. We have such a big show for you today that if it was any more jam-packed, we'd have to charge you extra. A little bit later on, Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers will drop by. They are the co-directors of a new Disney film called Soul, which you'll be able to find on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. We'll tell you all about that shortly. Before that, Hanarayan Singh stops by. You know him as the host of the Punjabi language broadcast of Hockey Night in Canada. He's also the author of a new memoir, and it's fascinating. Stay with us. Hang tight. We'll talk about that shortly. Then Robert Lacey, royal watcher extraordinaire, comes by, and he'll tell us about the rift between Harry and William. First up, though, we meet Shaggy. He is a superstar, Jamaican reggae musician, singer. He's a DJ. He's an actor. He's had giant worldwide hits. And now, just in time for Christmas, he's releasing a Christmas album that sounds a little different from some other Christmas albums you've heard. It's called Christmas in the Islands. Here's my chat with Shaggy, live via Zoom from his home in Jamaica. It looks beautiful wherever you are. It is. We're having a great, great weather. Oh, good. Yeah. That, that's the island with Christmas. That's the, the, the thing with Christmas in the islands, you know? You yeah. get great weather. <laughs> Congratulations on the new record. Thank you, sir. Was any of this recorded during COVID, during the lockdown? And if so, how do you, there's a lot of collaborations on this. How do you collaborate uh, if you're in lockdown? A lot of it was done. It was all written. I tell you what, the whole idea started last year when I did, I did the Disney Christmas special mm -hmm. um, with, with Sting. And we did a couple of Christmas songs. One of them was uh, Jamaican Drummer Boy. And um, <clears throat> Sting and I started talking about doing a Christmas album. It'd be great to do a Christmas reggae album. And so I started to work on it around March when I came back from the UK tour. And I figured that, you know, then the pandemic hit. And I was like, all right, cool. This is gonna probably last for about a month. You know, and then I get to see Sting again, and then we just continue. And it didn't, it didn't stop. And he was stuck in the UK and was stuck in New York, and we just couldn't get to do it. And he wasn't traveling. So I just kept writing it, and I kept writing it now from a Shaggy perspective and from a Jamaica perspective. And um, then Jamaica opened back up, and I came back to Jamaica. And that's when I started to uh, connect with these artists. And a lot of them... Um, I went in the studio for some of it because once you quarantine for the 14 days, then you can move about, but there's a curfew, you right. know? And so they would come in into the studios and I'll do my backgrounds on certain day and my horns on certain days and, you know, just kind of make it work. It must have been a much different kind of recording process though than you're used to. Um, the vibe was kind of the same. It's just it, within the time restrictions. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, I think the curfews were at nine o'clock. You know, uh, when, they, when it was, I think it's still at nine o'clock actually. And um, so I had to get it done in between there. I think at that time it, it was, the curfew was at five, mm -hmm. ended at five. So I, I, I had to do everything in a day, which was a little bit difficult because most of these artists, that's their, they're asleep during the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, what differentiates this album from other Christmas albums. Now, obviously, it's your style and it's called mm -hmm. Christmas in the Island. We get that. Uh, but I've listened to it. It's fantastic. It's so much fun. Uh, but Thank tell you. me, for your, from your point of view, what makes this one different? I think what makes it different, it's, it's, 
from the point of view. If you listen to the lyrical content of a lot of it, it's talking about Christmas, but it's talking about a Jamaican style of Christmas. You know, there's sunshine, there's beach, there's weed, there's rum, there is uh, a certain type of food. You're talking about Sara, you're talking about Grand Market, which is kind of like a Christmas market, you know, of kids going and, and getting toys and stuff, but on a market style, right. you know. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're just talking about the, the food, you're talking about uh, the, 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 just the culture within itself. And where, where Christmas in Jamaica, it's a party culture. You know, you're talking hopping, because the weather's so great, you're hopping from parties to party. There's day parties, there's beach parties, there's night parties, you know, just all white parties. You know I mean? There's let's drink rum party. You know I mean? it's, it's whatever it is, but it's just the festivity goes on and it's, it's incredible. And then the sonics of it, the sound of it, I made it very um, hybrid. You know, there's some classic reggae tracks, like with the classic songs, I put them in raw, straight traditional reggae. But then there's other songs that have pop elements to them, like Have Yourself Some Rays, you know, um, songs like uh, Open Presence, it's just so beautiful, done by Romain Berger. So here's a, 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 a reggae crooner who does these really um, one-drop reggae records, but then you're putting them on this really pop record. You know, you got Bounty Killer and, and Junior Reed, who are, you know, two icons. But yeah, you know, legends. Always, yeah, legends, but Bounty Killer is always just hardcore guy, but then he's singing about Christmas, you know, and, and having a smile about it and doing it. So it's these things that you put together to create this really wonderful roller coaster ride of, of Christmas emotion. Santa Claus, no piece of that, we never celebrated just because big stones string up in the land. Everybody out the road, you see them dance and not carry on. And has Christmas music always been a thing for you? You started this last year or started thinking about it uh, with Sting, but growing up, were Christmas songs something that you were drawn to at all? I was really drawn to like, like a lot of the traditional, like for instance, if you hear Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell rock, you just know, okay, that's Christmas. It, it just tells you. But there, there are certain classic Jamaican Christmas songs like Santa Claus, uh, Carlene Davis's song, Santa Claus, do you ever come to the ghetto? Yeah. The ghetto, classic song that she has done. And that has been, as a kid growing up, was part of the whole time. You're listening to my interview with superstar Jamaican reggae musician, singer, and DJ Shaggy. Find his new album, Christmas in the Islands, wherever you buy fine music. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let yourself be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. How did you choose the songs, the, the traditional songs that you record here? First of all, I looked for the ones that I could that could fit in my key. Mm. You know, and that's that's you know. So I went through a couple of them, and I okay, okay. I started singing. I was watching Bing Cosby, and I went on YouTube and I saw Bing Cosby singing these songs. And I was like, okay, that's in my key. I could do that, you know. And I just started playing around with those. And then I when I went, I sat with my musicians, and I was just like, I want this reggae, feel good, you're with a drink, put yourself in that mood, and then. You know, we came up with that with, with the five, and you know, Michael Fletcher and you know, uh, Sean Darson, all the guys from my band, um, they just really, you know, went in and just knocked it. And it's, it's, you know, it's second nature to these guys, you know, so it was great. For years now, you have uh, done a lot of uh, charity work with the Bustamante Hotel. 
uh, or a hotel, uh, hospital, uh, hospital. Uh, hospital. Just, yeah, children <laughs> hospital. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and now, will will you continue that work this year? Will COVID uh, get in the way of doing that this year, or no? Well, we you normally every Christmas we do a treat, mm-hmm. um, and I might try and still do the treat where I just give the presents. I don't think I'll be able to walk the wards yeah. um, like we did, but we'll just probably just get the presents wrapped and get them done with our team and just really give them out. As far as having our annual Christmas concert that we have for them, that might be a little bit difficult because of COVID. Uh, obviously, we cannot do big, massive concert. The last concert I did was two years ago with me and Sting. And because um, I normally do it every other year. So this would have been a Shaggy and Friends here. And uh, so I, I, I couldn't get it done, obviously, because of COVID. So, uh, you know, right, everything right now in life is about playing it by ear. What do you miss most about performing live? I miss going to each country and feeling the culture. Yeah. I, I get off on being with people. I'm a people person. So if I go to Uganda, I want to be in the markets. I want to go around and, you know, I want to sit down and have a drink with people and have dinner with people and eat food. And, you know, and, I've, and because I've been touring for so many years, I know people from these places who are my friends and we have relationships and, you know, I'll come and they'll meet me and we'll break bread with them and all of that. So I'm, I miss, I miss all of that. I've been asking musicians uh, that during the pandemic, when there was so little live music, I'm in Canada mm-hmm. right now, I'm speaking to you from mm-hmm. Canada and it's just shut down here. We, we have very yeah. little live music. And so I've yeah. been asking musicians, if there was a memory, when you think back to live music, is there a concert that comes to mind? Maybe it's one that you did. Uh, maybe it's one that you just saw that was very influential for you. But is there a memory that jumps into your head when you think of live music now? The biggest live experience that I've had, uh, and I, there probably might be some that are, that are bigger in, in sense of, you know, statue or, or whatever, but uh, the 44876 tour with me and Sting was the greatest time of my life. Um, I had more fun on that tour than any tour. I, you know, we enjoyed every show every night. Um, it was so left field and unorthodox and weird. And <laughs> and you could see the confusion on people's faces when, they, when they, they're in the audience, like, what am I expecting now? And the minute we roll off with the first song and just, roll into it, it was just perfect. And we just kept, we just kept the music going after that. Because you put Sting and Shaggy together, you might be wondering, what is this? But once we start laying these songs, it's like, oh, I know this one. Oh, I know this one. Because there's so much hits between us both. And it's one, it's a two hour show filled with back-to-back hits. Well, Shaggy, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. I won't keep you any longer. It looks like you have a beautiful day, unlike where I am right now. I know, I, you know I've, I've, done, I've done a couple of Canadian interviews and I'm like, man, I, I understand it. You know, but if, if you can listen to this, this record and feel like it, it's sunshine, you know, we're about to drop the video with, uh, with Neil and, and Ding Dong. And when you see that, you're gonna, then you're gonna be like, oh my God, I really need an island right now. <laughs> it's- First up though, we meet Hannah Ryan Singh, host of the Punjabi language broadcast of Hockey Night in Canada and the author of a fascinating new memoir called One Game at a Time, my journey from small town Alberta to hockey's biggest stage. He joins me from his home in Alberta. I wanna know 
a little bit about the first memoir that you wrote. This isn't your first memoir. Tell me what you remember about the one that you wrote in grade six. It's actually right here uh, above my right shoulder. Oh. And yeah, grade six project <laughs> where it's called My Life and um, the autobiography. And within that, I, I write that uh, when I grow up, I want to become a hockey commentator. And so, uh, you know, a lot of uh, neat information in there that, you know, to to look back on to see what I was thinking about as a kid. But obviously very hockey focused. There's a Wayne Gretzky hockey stick. It says Easton Aluminum, which was the shiny hockey stick that he used when he was on the L.A. Kings. You were gifted with a mini hockey stick as a present from a cousin shortly after you were born. How important was hockey in your family? It was huge. I mean, we were lucky to be in Alberta during the 80s when the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames were the top teams in the league. And you had a, a fellow by the name of Wayne Gretzky who was, you know, just the ultimate ambassador for the sport. Not only was he phenomenal and the great one on the ice, but just how he carried himself off the ice, mm -hmm. it matched what I was learning from my parents about the six scriptures about being a humble person. And it was pretty crazy because Gretzky was uh, acting out all of that, uh, just how he carries himself with, as such a class act. And we became Gretzky fans. And just, you know, when he moved over to the, the Kings and the Blues and then the Rangers, our allegiance, uh, my sister and I had just followed uh, had a Gretzky shrine in the house and, you know, just the hockey card collection was, I was so meticulous as to uh, wh what order I would put it in, memorizing all these facts. You know, Richard, my dad being a PhD in math, seven post-secondary degrees, he was worried that, in his words, I was making my mind into an encyclopedia <laughs> of hockey. What was I going to do with it? But lo and behold, here we are. Now, have you ever met Wayne Gretzky? Yes, uh, you know, five times as a fan, had the opportunity to, uh, and my parents were generous enough, enough. They were teachers, and they let us skip school mm -hmm. to stalk him whenever he came out to Alberta. <laughs> and uh, and then when he retired at some charity golf tournaments, I talk about all of those experiences mm -hmm. in detail in the book. And then as a broadcaster as well, a few times, and just as advertised, maybe even maybe maybe even better than advertised in terms of how much respect and time he gives everybody. You're listening to my interview with Harner Ryan Singh, author of One Game at a time my journey from small town alberta to hockey's biggest stage now you talk about broadcasting when you were just a, a, a little boy you practiced broadcasting with a plastic microphone and a yellow tape recorder you're like four years old has this always been the dream job and that microphone yeah that's when i emulated ron mcclain and uh, tried to pretend to host my own NHL awards and and do play-by-play. -play. And I had my own entire imaginary hockey world, my own team. The Mighty Ducks uh, movies were very inspirational mm -hmm. for me. And I had my own fictitious characters. And I would act out as the coach and the GM and do all the media. And, and that microphone was my all-time favorite toy. Now, you mentioned Ron McClain. He writes the foreword uh, to your new book, One Game at a Time. Uh, why a memoir? Why now? Well, you know, I think it's uh, it's actually more timely than we first even uh, thought of when mm -hmm. the publishers approached me to write this. It's a, it's a necessary positive story about diversity through the lens of a hockey broadcaster. And I think that, you know, this story really shows hockey's power to unite in Canada. It resonates with people from so many uh, different backgrounds. And, and, you know, for me, hockey was the icebreaker between my classmates and I in terms of when I was in a small town. I didn't have much that I could relate with with
with my classmates. Uh, but it had had it not been for hockey, my childhood and my experience growing up in Canada as a visible minority would have been drastically different. Mm. And so that's why I think this book is not just for hockey fans. It's what everybody needs to hear right now in terms of all of the things we're seeing going on in the world. Uh, this book has become more and more timely uh, given the subject matter. Well, let's get down to some details then. What was it like growing up being a Sikh kid playing hockey in rural Alberta? Yeah, it was very different because of the fact that um, there was such, uh, you know, few diverse people in the town and I was the subject of a lot of curiosity and every single day uh, answering questions about my appearance, my turban, how long is your hair? As a Sikh, I wear a steel bracelet on my hand mm. to remember the creator. We're vegetarian, listen to different music, spoke a different language at home. And, and so you're always trying to find a common ground, commonality with your classmates to try to fit in. And so I became known as the hockey obsessed nut. I mean, there was there was uh, oftentimes, uh, Richard, where I started in junior high, then eventually I started winning hockey pools. And my mom gave me some encouragement when I showed up with a hundred bucks. And uh, my dad being such a, you know, science, math, science guy and not really as much into hockey. And then when the staff hockey pool, his colleagues were asking him how he was winning and little did they know I was making the picks, but <laughs> Uh, but, you know, growing up in that small town, uh, it was, a, for the m most part, a positive experience. But there were moments that were traumatic where mm -hmm. I had to stand up for myself. I had to continually justi justify myself as a Canadian. Salesman came to the door. I tell a story in the book and, um, you know, did his spiel. I said, thanks, but no thanks. But he said to me, well, I just wanted to say, welcome to Canada. And he walked off. And for me, with my family's history dating back over 100 years mm -hmm. in this country, I'm such a patriotic Canadian. In Brooks, Alberta, my bedroom window facing the road had a Canadian flag on it. That was devastating for me. And I had to figure out why he said that. And, and so, I, you know, I've always had to wear being Canadian on my sleeve, along with how I look, to just try to prove to other people that just because I have how I look, I'm not new here. And I am Canadian. And, you know, I love this country. And I love this game of hockey. That was my interview with Harna Ryan Singh. Find his book, One Game at a Time, My Journey from Small Town Alberta to Hockey's Biggest Stage, wherever you buy fine books. Now, do you think you have problems with your family? Robert Lacey's book would be hard to top for stories of family dysfunction. Battle of Brothers, William and Harry, the inside story of a family in tumult is the final word on the battle royale between the two famous brothers. Also, if you've been watching The Crown, and let's face it, who hasn't been, you've seen his work. He's the historical consultant on that very popular Netflix show. He joins me via Zoom from his home in London. Do you think that they were raised differently because of their birth order? Some people refer to the heir and the spare. Is that something that plays into this? It's a, it, it, it's a major major factor richard mm -hmm. in 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 the problem the rather cruel stereotyping that um exists in the british royal family and thus in the canadian royal family too as well um as early as the age of four little harry was misbehaving in the back of a car um one day and his nanny told him to behave and he said i don't have to behave i'm not going to be king now that's at the age of four his brother william at that stage is six William at that stage is already becoming more serious, um, getting ready for his future destiny. I would go so far as to say that the knowledge he was going to be 
king um, kept William going through all the trials and tribulations of the breakdown of his parents' marriage, mm -hmm. not to mention the death of his mother. Whereas for Harry, he took a different lesson from what had gone wrong. Um, love is what matters to him. And so we have this, this, this classic um, clash that goes right back to 1936 in the British monarchy, a clash between love and duty. And just as in 36, the abdication of Edward VIII, duty won, love was exiled, the same has happened now, except in the person of two people, one of whom has come to your side of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Now, how much did the public battles between Charles and Diana uh, have an impact on their son's marriages? Um, in my book, I, I lay great weight on the the... the the psychological disturbance that the battles between um, the parents had upon the children. Uh, and we've got very well-documented um, evidence of, of William saying something to, to his mother like, does that mean daddy really never loved you after Charles had broadcast um, admitting his love affair with Camilla? Mm -hmm. And then after... Diana got her own revenge in the interview that's, whose anniversary is just coming up this month. Um, uh, William absolutely refused for a week to talk to his mother. Um, and I date that, um, his, 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 his pain at the battle between his, his mother and father um, as the beginning of his adulthood, really. Um, and actually the forging of a very strong future monarch. Now, it's been 25 years since that interview that you mentioned with Martin Bashir. It's come under scrutiny now because there are apparently some uh, peculiarities with how it was, uh, uh, how Martin Bashir talked Diana into doing the interview. Uh, what's your take on that whole situation? Well, you're absolutely right, Richard. There were worse than irregularities. Um, it's absolutely established now that Martin Bashir got a BBC artistic uh, editor to fake um, bank statements that would give him access to Diana's brother, mm -hmm. um, Charles mm -hmm. Spencer, allegedly showing that people in the Spencer organization were taking money from newspapers. Um, this may or may not have been the case, but certainly the bank statements were fake, but they gave Bashir access to um, Spencer and he then passed him on to Diana. Having said this, um, I'm of the opinion that Diana would have spoken to somebody anyway. We know that Oprah even then was approaching her, Barbara Walters, our own David Frost. Um, the cheating involved the BBC grabbing the scoop. But Diana was going to say these things. She was going to cast doubt on Charles's suitability for the succession. She was going to point the finger um, at her husband's adultery. So um, that's the background. Um, and it, it did have a shattering effect on her elder son. You're listening to my interview with Robert Lacey, author of Battle of Brothers, William and Harry, the inside story of a family in tumult. Let's get back to the brothers then and the sons. Uh, they were very close, especially when they lost their mother. When did this rift begin? Did it start with Megan? Um, Megan crystallized um, uh, what was wrong 
um, and helped Harry look at his situation in another way. But Harry is on record as saying that he doesn't like this word Mexit. He has actually mm -hmm. said, look, um, this was my decision. And it does go back to their teenage years when, if you remember, Harry got into trouble. Um, he got caught taking drugs. There was a notorious um, case when he went to a fancy dress party mm -hmm. dressed in a Nazi uniform. The background to these events, however, was that Harry got stoned and drunk at parties that were organized by his elder brother, William. Um, when he went to the costume shop and picked up the Nazi uniform, uh, he chose it in the company of his brother, William, who didn't tell him not to do it. And they went together to the costume party, um, laughing together as co-conspirators. But when the publicity happened, it was Harry who got the blame and William walked away scot-free. Uh, who we, we, we have in Britain this nursery rhyme, who's the king of the castle and who's the dirty rascal? And um, just going back exactly to what you said, Richard, um, Harry learned that um, it's the fate of the spare um, to be the runner-up and to take the blame while the heir emerges faultless. And that was the beginning of of rows, no speaks, as they called it. Mm -hmm. They made it up again later, but that was when the seeds of doubt were sown in Harry's mind. I think the Crown has done a really interesting job of painting that picture with Princess Margaret and really showing uh, what it's like to always be number two. Richard, you, uh, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth because <laughs> I was going to say that Harry is, in fact, the third spare that this has happened to. Um, all the spares in the Queen's reign have come to grief. Um, they start off as co-stars. I mean, some of your older viewers may remember um, uh, the Little Princesses, two wonderful little girls playing in the 40s. Um, uh, but then it was downhill from then onwards for um, Margaret. Andrew is a controversial character, but let's not forget, like Harry, he went to war, he risked his life in the Falklands, he tried to create an identity for himself, um, and he came to grief as well. And now Harry is the third one, and Harry has actually said, under the influence of Meghan, as you suggest, um, I'm getting out of this. Uh, I'm going um, to the land of the free. Now, was Meghan really referred to as Duchess difficult by the Buckingham Palace? And how did Harry respond to that? Um, there's no love lost um, between the staff at Buckingham Palace and Meghan. Um, when Harry and William decided to split their offices, Harry actually wanted to go down to Windsor and set up his own office down there with Meghan. Because in those days, he didn't have his nice, healthy Netflix contract. He <laughs> depended on Prince Charles. And Prince Charles said, look, we've got to save money. You've got to go to Buckingham Palace. And um, she said, OK, but I'm going to bring in my own American advisors. And that did not go down well with the Buckham Palace courtiers. Um, and I think we've seen it as recently as this week, where Harry asked Buckingham Palace if somebody in his absence could place a wreath on the cenotaph. Um, and he was told no. Uh, there's definitely personal feeling there. And um, 
it's made the situation worse. That was Robert Lacey, author of Battle of Brothers, William and Harry, the inside story of a family in tumult. That book is available wherever you purchase fine books. And trust me, it is about as juicy and well-researched as any book that you're going to find out there about the Royals. You'll want to have a look at it. If you are looking for something to do with the kids over Christmas, something to show them, how about checking out the movie Soul? You'll find it on Disney+. Plus. It was supposed to go to the theaters. Well, but that's not happening now. So this movie about a musician who has lost his passion for music and then gets transported out of his body and then he tries to find his way back with the help of an infant soul learning about herself has themes in it that I think both kids and parents will appreciate. It was directed by Pete Docter. You know him from movies like Monsters, Inc., Inside Out, and of course, one of my favorites, Up. Co-written by Kemp Powers and produced by Dana Murray, all of whom join me right now. A little bit later on, you'll hear from a Canadian who was the story lead and additional story supervisor on Soul, a guy called Trevor Jimenez. I began the interview by asking Pete Doctor what inspired the unusual story. Is this heaven? No. Is it H E double hockey sticks? Hell, hell, hell. Quiet coyotes. <laughs> no, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interest before they go to Earth. I've loved animation my whole life, and I've been so into it that like two days after my son was born I was back at work you know I've I've really been passionate and so after uh, a number of these and, and Inside Out had uh, we had amazing great success uh, and I I guess I thought well now what do I just do this all again is this it was kind of like a kind of a crossroads moment of like is this really what I should be doing with my life and what is that the best way to spend your life and all those kind of big questions led into really the formation of this film. There's a soul missing. And then Dana, how were you involved in the, the initial uh, part of the inspiration for this film? I was in development at that time, working on all the projects, helping out the directors. You immediately got to start researching and speaking to religious leaders and philosophers and shamans. And it was just, it was interesting from day one. Don't worry, you can't crush a soul here. That's what life on earth is for. Kemp, you came onto the project just a little bit later on. What can you tell me about the development process? How do you go from, I want to make a movie about what makes us human to a 91 minute feature animated movie uh, that uh, speaks to the human condition? Uh, with a lot of anxiety, of course. Um, <laughs> but look, look man, I, I'll, I'll admit, I, I think I was probably a little bit delusional in that I kind of came in just assuming it was all going to work out because Pixar has a habit of figuring <laughs> things out. So I was like, well, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it, right? Because you guys seem to do it every single time. And even within the, the, the realm of the Pixar creators, you know, Pete's had some of the most nutballs films that they've done. <laughs> so I figured, like, if he can get me behind, like, a, a geriatric protagonist attaching balloons to his house, you know what I mean? To talk, then, then we'll, we'll figure it out. That being said, it was like driving with a blindfold on. You do have to have a little bit of faith um, in the process and, and, and be on a team. You know what I mean? We, it's, it's, it seems like a little bit of an antiquated idea, but people have asked me, like, What's the key? Like you seem to do so well over there at, at Pixar. What was it? And I was like, I'm just a team player, man. Like it, it, it sounds, you know, I mean, you laugh, but like people aren't team players anymore. 
And, and I think if you go back and do a lot of research and, and learn a lot about the history of Disney, well, going back to Walt Disney, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. This stuff doesn't happen by accident, man. It's, it's a lot of people <clears throat> kind of giving up themselves for this greater whole. And so, yeah, I just had some faith. Spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. The brilliant, passionate you. That's ready to contribute something meaningful into this world. Get ready. Your life is about to start. Uh, this film uh, is about chasing your dreams. It's about more than that, though, I think. And what makes it different from other films that we've seen that are about pursuing dreams? Well, for one, and this is a bit of a spoiler, I, I was hoping to challenge that, to okay. just kind of shake it up and go like, wait, are you sure life's all about chasing your dreams? <laughs> That's really going to make you happy? Is just achieving this one thing? Well, um, you know, because there's lots of times, I mean, a lot of times, if you really break down like Pixar films, a lot of times it's it's uh, about relationships and sort of accepting someone that you've had a tough time with, you know, which is kind of a buddy film structure. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, but a lot of times people just piss me off. Like, I'm not, I don't always love being around people. Maybe we can make a movie that the answer isn't just love your this one person, you know. Uh, and and so that's really there was a there was a lot of uh, kind of big ideas at the beginning of this that um well i mean we yeah. definitely get to take you to places that you've thought about but no one's ever been you're listening to my interview with the creative team behind the movie soul now playing on disney plus creating the soul world and having the personality pavilions and coming up with these vis visuals for um not just kids but everyone is you know i think i think our world makes it so different and the and the music too it's like it's it's out there. Wow, it's my life. Is all this living really worth dying for? You're still alive? Can you help me get back? No way! There I am. What are we waiting for? Wait, not me! Hi Trevor, how are you? Hey, hey Richard, nice to meet you. Tell me a little bit about finding the tone for a movie like Soul. Uh, it's filled with big ideas. So how do you find the tone for something like that overall? Uh, that's a great question. I think it's um, also a complicated answer because it involves so many people. Mm -hmm. It starts with Pete, who I think always asks really big conceptual questions with his films, you know, like Inside Out and Up, right? They're pretty, um, you know, I don't think they're usually tackled in animated films. So this one is even more ambitious in a lot of ways. Like, the afterlife and, and purpose and meaning of life, like all that stuff. And I think um, he really utilizes the team and everyone kind of has different perspectives and we do a lot of research. Um, and then I think everyone kind of works together through like, obviously we have amazing visual artists, but they're also great editors, you know, that we work with that sort of establish the tone through editing and music. And, you know, Kevin Nolting, our lead editor and his team were so great at kind of finding um, a specific tone early on for the afterlife. And then, you know, in the story team, finding some visuals early that helped that too. And they kind of work together, I think. And that's like, I think the very first seed that just sort of grows from there. We only have a short time on this planet. You want to become the person that you were born to be? Don't waste your time on all the junk of life. What am I doing? 
Spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. The brilliant, passionate you that's ready to contribute something meaningful and to this world. Do you think that uh, this is the kind of story that could really only be done in animation? For sure, yeah. I mean, I have a hard time. It would just have a different feeling if you had live action actors with these um, kind of like, you know, spirits following them around and yeah. the afterlife itself would probably be done in CG as well anyway. So I, I like that it's all sort of harmonious and it, it all fits together. I think it looks beautiful and um, I can't imagine it being any other medium. Music is life. You just need to know where to look. What were the challenges of bringing the music to life? And I'm told that there were films shot of John Baptiste playing the music that was used as kind of a, a reference point. But um, when you're animating something like that, are there particular challenges to uh, performance on film like that? Or is it just the same as trying to make someone look like they can walk convincingly uh, while animated? I think it's really challenging. The animators that I know that worked on this film found that the actual piano playing was some of the most technically demanding. It was like very um, kind of fine-tuned type of work. Like we're, it's not like these expressive gestures, you know, where you just get to um, kind of focus on this like overall performance. You're really focusing on these minute details and like mm -hmm. hitting the right keys and they want to be accurate. So they were watching footage of John and then also making sure that, you know, things are sort of musically accurate at the same time. And there's all these controls and the fingers and the hands are so complicated. So really hard stuff. I didn't have to do any of that. But, so what yeah. do you want to be remembered for? Probably for doing this funny cowboy dance. Great. So often in these films, there are little Easter eggs that if you poke around and you can find, uh, did you drop in anything that, uh, relates back to your time growing up in either Hamilton or Toronto? Yeah, I think I tried. I mean, <laughs> I think anytime uh, there's snow, I just have a nostalgia with snow, um, just growing up with seasonal weather. And I think part of me misses it, but also doesn't. And so I, anytime there was a scene that felt like kind of nostalgic, I try to put snow in there in the boards because I think it evokes like an emotion. Get ready. Your life is about to start. That was my interview with the creative team behind the movie Soul, and you can find that starting on Christmas Day on Disney+. My thanks to Pete Doctor, the director, Kemp Powers, co-director and writer, producer Dana Murray, and of course the story lead and additional story supervisor, he's from Canada, Trevor Jimenez for joining me. I also want to thank all my other guests. It's been a jam-packed show. Jamaican superstar Shaggy, check out his new album Christmas in the Islands wherever you legally buy or download music. My thanks to Robert Lacey, author of Battle of Brothers, William and Harry, the inside story of a family in tumult. The title is a mouthful, but it's a really good book if you are a royal watcher and it's available wherever you buy fine books. Also, big thanks to Harnarayam Singh. Check out his memoir, One Game at a Time, My Journey from small town Alberta to hockey's biggest stage. This is the perfect Christmas gift for someone who's been missing hockey. 
Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.